Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. In this episode, my guest is author Peter Bibergall, who joined me to discuss his 2018 book, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. In that work, he explores the various ways people have tried to use technology to better understand and communicate with the supernatural, along with the engineers, inventors and seers who are fascinated by those mysteries. Peter has written extensively on a range of fringe and fortean subjects, with essays and reviews featured in The New Yorker, The Times Literary Supplement, The Believer and The Quietus. He is also the author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, and has recently edited Appendix N, The Eldritch Roots of Dungeons and Dragons, due out early next year. This is a wide-ranging chat covering magic, technology, myth and science. Something for everyone, I hope. Enjoy! Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rick. You've written a number of books on a range of unusual subjects. What first got you interested in the supernatural? Well, I think it's been um, sort of part of my internal landscape for as long as I can remember. Probably to tell you the truth, it started with the sort of monster craze of the 1970s. I know that in the United States, um, we were... Probably while while where you are, you are looking at you know sort of the quartermass style, um, you know horrors of the deep past, <laughs> um, because we don't really have a deep past like that in the same way here. Um, our look, our our search for the horrors in the nineteen seventies and late sixties was in some ways to go to the classical. Uh, universal movie monsters and so you know when i was coming of age you couldn't get away from all the pop culture monster associated things whether it was you know the what we had creature double feature here on saturday mornings sundays sunday mornings to the serials count you know that was the when things like count chocula you know, started to be introduced to the public and all the wonderful Aurora monster models, which were just such a part of my childhood. But there was also alongside that was the rock and roll of the time, which I had an older brother that listened to and, you know, my music was Bay City Rollers and Snoopy vs. the Red Baron. But from my brother's room, I would hear the Beatles and David Bowie and Alice Cooper and Led Zeppelin. And there was the sounds of that music, at least to the seven, six, seven-year-old at the time, had this vaguely, I don't want to say sinister quality, but certainly otherworldly sensibility that I knew maybe intuitively had something to do with sex and drugs, but I couldn't quite, you know, <laughs> I didn't really have the language for it, but it all seemed of a, for me at least, and I, I think there are a lot of people of my generation 
um, that are interested in the things, you know, that we're interested in recognize the seventies as being particularly weird in terms of the, not again, not only the, the pop culture, but the music and uh, the television shows, there was always some paranormal episode of some TV show. We had Kolchak, the Night Stalker here, and um, Rod Serling would go on after the Twilight Zone to do a very strange and lurid show here. I don't know if you had it where in, in the UK called Night Gallery, which was, you know, again, this kind of um, episodic exploration of the weird and so, and, and, and of horror. So that was just sort of, and for whatever reason, I preferred that to sports, <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> other pop culture, right? That was just um, what I leaned towards. And I always sort of had a, a side interest. I mean, underneath all that, you know, whenever I, anything I would read, whether it was a book about monsters or monster movies or, you know, reading and looking at the reading the lyrics or looking at the album covers that my brother was listening to. There was also these elements of the occult and the esoteric that sort of threaded their way through all of these things. Not that they were, you know, a one-to-one connection, but certainly they were at least in the 1970s of a piece, you know. There was an atmosphere that I just found absolutely compelling. And then the next thing for me was to become interested in role-playing games. And and there in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, there was a part of that that also spoke to sort of a, a magical worldview, which seemed to me at the time at least to be not just about fantasy, but something that had some historical roots. And I remember probably one of the biggest impacts on me, and this sort of ties it up, I think, in a, in a nice little bow, which is, you know, starting off watching Frankenstein in the, in the early 70s on Creature Double Feature and being completely enamored with it. And then maybe in 1981, finding my way to Salem, Massachusetts, to one of the bookshops there and buying um, a hardcover edition of the Key of Solomon, hmm. the McGrether Mathers, you know, um, uh, translation. And I didn't know anything about it except that it had to do with conjuring demons and that that seemed to be something that was also happening in the games of Dungeons and Dragons that I was playing, but also in the stories of Creepy and Eerie magazine and the War and Horror comics of the time, the Son of Satan comic book that Marvel put out. You know, there was everything was just awash with this. And to have found what I didn't, again, know, I was very ignorant of it, of what it really was, but to have actually discovered something that was, quote, authentic in terms of historical magic just really brought everything together for me in a way that really fired my imagination. And I've never really let go of it since then. It's really been um, just something that's, again, really makes up so much of the uh, the internal weather of my psyche. 
Mm, I, I totally get that. So when you bought that book, The Lesser Key of Solomon, did you use it? No, I did. I mean, you know, I think four, 13, 14 year old me would have loved to have tried. But as I started <laughs> to read through, you know, the, the actual requirements and you had to get the skin of a toad, you know, at midnight you know, and, you know, the, the prescriptions of, of the magic in that book. I mean, I think we often don't we don't talk about it as explicitly. I mean, obviously, that book and, and other like grimoires have had a huge impact on on all thoughts about, you know, Western ceremonial magic and the esoteric tradition. But I think that, you know, at least for me at the time, digging deep and realizing that, you know, the requirements of fasting and, and um, the certain garments that had to be worn and the, the magical implements and the, the weapons and the tools and the, all of that, it, it, it almost looked impossible on purpose, right? That, it was so, it was made to be, it was almost a sort of a, um, and I still sometimes think about it this way. Hey kids, here's how to conjure demons. By the way, it's impossible. <laughs> Give it all <laughs> that you'll have to do and, and make sense of to be able to actually do it. Hmm. I mean, at the time, I mean, I know Dungeons and Dragons was popular. I mean, it's still popular now, but it was, it was really popular then. I mean, you went to Salem to get this book, but in general, was it relatively easy to get this kind of thing if you wanted to, or did you have to really seek it out? Yeah, it was. A, well, I think in the seventies, it was. You know, people were people wanted this kind of material, so there was a lot of books on astrology. And I remember going to Walden. There was a, a chain bookstore here in the states called Walden Books, and you could go to the mall. That's where they were. And I remember buying a copy of, of Regardi's Golden Dawn from a Walden Books in the mall of the suburbs where I lived. And again, for me, 14 years old, completely unusable, right? But again, it, 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 it wasn't that it made those things mainstream necessarily, but it did give me act, and I knew that you know it was the one copy on the bookshelf, surrounded by books on astrology and the um, the paperback version of the Necronomicon that was very popular then. But I I knew that this also was something different, that it was something unique because it was a system of magic, not just you know sort of a lurid um, look at traditions or a you know a palimpsest of things like the necronomicon you know some real things some fake things i mean even not having a discerning eye i knew that the the paperback version of the necronomicon wasn't quite as quote i say this with all due respect to everybody quite as quote real as the golden dawn by regardi you know, I, I even at fourteen, I could tell there was something uniquely different about about those two things. Even though they both had a prized position on my bookshelf as a teenager, right? Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think it 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 was both. But again, that was limited access. I mean, I didn't know at the time, of course, about you know uh, esoteric communities i didn't have you know we didn't have the internet so if you didn't know to ask you didn't know to look necessarily and 
I think that um, it it was sometimes difficult to find the things except what was available. And so I assumed the things that were available were the most important things, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And were your friends into it as well? Were you, did you have a, like a group of people that you could kind of spitball ideas about when you were reading this kind of thing? Not only, only in a role-playing capacity, you know, I mean, I had friends that were, but what was to happen um, was for me at least around my early, around the time of 15, 16 years old, I began to experiment with, um, with drugs and, and alcohol. And that lended a kind of, uh, a fuel to that interest in a way that would take me into more, I don't know if I would say thoughtful engagements, but certainly more deeper engagements, right? I, because then what I was looking for was the literature and the material that seemed to me to cross over between what I saw as some possible esoteric knowledge and the experience of, say, psychedelics. And so I became really interested in things like Carlos Castaneda and, um, you know, started reading about the psychedelic 60s and started reading about Timothy Leary and Ram Das. And again, these, you know, they weren't necessarily esotericists, but certainly there was this all this crossover. And so it became really a, that, that for a long time was the way in which I tried to make sense of all of that material. It didn't go very well for me personally. And so ultimately, and that, and again, to answer your question, I mean, that was, it was in the sort of LSD fueled adventures with my friends when we would have conversations about esoteric lore, but most of it was just stuff we were thinking about at the time and didn't really end up having much meaning beyond the moment that we had been tripping, right? So um, it really didn't carry over further than that in terms of us trying to come up with anything that was practical or pragmatic or something that we could put into practice. Um, I did try some experiments when I was around that time, but I think part of the problem is, is that as a, as a trying to be a solitary practitioner in the suburbs in the night, in the early 1980s without really any uh, community or teachers or any place to get, any access to anything that wasn't just what was popular, you know, did make it difficult for me to, I feel like, have an experience that wasn't just kind of surface. And also because for me it was it was really driven by what would become kind of a compulsive um, experience and compulsive experience with alcohol and drugs that I kind of undermined my own best intentions, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can, I understand what you're saying there. I mean, did you, with someone with an interest in the paranormal, did you have any unusual experiences, not not necessarily connected to the books you were reading, but just in general as someone interested in ghosts and, and, and I assume things like UFOs as well? Did you have any experiences with those sorts of things? Yeah, I, I would I would seek out those things. They were usually what I still like to refer to as sort of you know um, glitches, 
where uh, rather than sort of full on um, encounters, I would have later in my life what I would consider deeper spiritual experiences. But I would say that the what's interesting about my career, both as a writer, but also as a as a seeker, is that my deeper spiritual experiences, the ones where I have really felt the most connected to what I would call um, the divine or some um, some numinous reality, tend to not have paranormal elements associated with them. And so I've had, say, really beautiful revelatory moments using the I Ching, for example. And I've had really wonderful tarot readings that by, um, by friends that I have felt really um, helped me get it, gain an understanding of some, you know, some psychic uh, question that I was trying to um, make sense of. And, and the way those things have played on my consciousness have been quite, quite powerful and, and really important. But in terms of really feeling like I've stepped outside of the phenomenal into the numinous and really touched something, um, it, they, those have been experiences that I would not characterize as paranormal. Hmm. Um, the book of yours in this interview that we're going to be talking about most is um, Strange Frequencies, which came out in 2018. And it's got a subtitle of The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. And I'm interested in what it was that sort of prompted you to want to write this book and, and tell that story. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to, I don't think I would have written that book if I hadn't written the prior book, Season of the Witch, hmm. because it was in Season of the Witch, and, and we can, I don't want to stay too on that necessarily, but, it, it, but, but, but suffice it to say that my greater interest is what I would call, and what I've tried to define as the occult imagination, which is that in some ways, it doesn't matter in terms of thinking about the way that I want to think about these things, whether or not they are true in a, in a, in a way that can be measured or if it's even, or if we should even try to prove or disprove them. So belief for me is sort of irrelevant to how these ideas, these experiences that people have had, these texts, these stories, these mythologies, these practices play on our consciousness and how they shape our consciousness and how they shape our imagination. And so it's very important when I talk about this to always say to get go with it. When I talk about the imagination, I'm not talking about things that are false, you know, to say, oh, you, you made it up. It's imaginary. That's not the way in which I want to think about that word. What I'm talking about really is the, the our primary creative you know, limb, appendage that we have, which is our imagination. And that, you know, when you think about the art and music and literature and, and things that, that have come about, have, have arisen because of that play of these ideas and these practices on our imagination, we can see that they actually do change the world. 
and so that's sort of you know going to the dictum of magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in the world according to will i like um uh dn fortune's gloss on that which is causing change to occur in consciousness hmm. because that's where because it's through consciousness and this is sort of following i think alan moore the you know the comic book author magician who would say you know it's through that change in consciousness that then art gets made and art is the product of the magical act right so i think that that's that's what I want to, that, that's what I'm interested in exploring. And so um, the challenge of writing a book like Strange Frequencies for me and what made it uh, really in many ways a, a, a really a, a, an incredible adventure was that I wasn't seeking to prove in any way or disprove that one can communicate with ghosts or spirits using electronic equipment or that life, you know, consciousness, we know that, con you know, there's life after death or you can, fo you can perfectly photograph spirits with the, in the, under the right conditions or any of that. I wasn't trying to do that. What I was trying to do was to show how the interplay of technology and our ideas and beliefs about the supernatural um, are connected in some deeply historical ways that say a lot about what it means, I think, to be human. And part of it has to do with, I think, a way to define magic in many ways is that magic is an attempt to kind of hack reality, right? And that to do that one always it, there's a sort of set of tools required and what you're doing is you're taking something that wasn't necessarily meant to be used in a certain way but uh breaking it or hacking it for that use so i i think of like john d's um scene stones right and speculum right so these are stones that don't have any properties other than what they are, except that under certain conditions, they can be repurposed. They, they're, they're hacked in terms of thinking about that word to becoming a vessel through which D could have this experience where he believed that he was communicating with angels and other spirits. And he actually describes in one of the texts of how um, he says something about how he needs the stones to sort of amplify his hearing to, you know, to, he, he talks about it almost in technological terms, that, it, that it's acting as a, um, you know, again, a, a, a tool that, that we have to construct, sort of bend to our will if you would, um, to have this kind of experience. And so I think magic at, in many ways can be defined as, as a kind of technology that is used to reshape our consciousness. And with all the new developments of technology throughout, uh, throughout the centuries, 
one of the things that we always tended to do was to try to understand how those new technologies might help us cross over into those, you know, sort of to, to open the veil, as it were, to, to pull apart the veil into the other world. And so, you know, even the development of the telegraph, people immediately thought, well, if this is something that is pulling sort of voices from the air, maybe it could be used to pull voices from the other world in the same way. And, um, you know, spiritualists, uh, mediums were, were often referred to as, you know, sort of spiritual, uh, tel- it, it was as telegraphs because there was still this idea. So the way in which those two metaphors sort of merged and continue to merge in our understanding about both um, occult practices and technologies is really the thing that I wanted to explore. Um, I think in many ways, one of the, some of the trouble I get into with my, with my readers is that I'm not trying to prove anything, but I'm also not trying to debunk anything. And so maybe, uh, you know, there are those that I interviewed that had experiences that for them were really about using technology, say like a radio um, or a microphone and a tape recorder to record what they believed were voices of the dead. And when they told me their stories, they told me their stories in exactly that way. But I didn't, I wrote it as I, I reported on it. I didn't try to show that what they had experienced was was true in a measurable way, but I also wasn't interested in trying to debunk it or make fun of it in any way. And so, you know, friends of mine who are, say, skeptics or atheists feel that I don't go far enough in trying to debunk things. And I don't know why they would think that I would want to, but I've been criticized for you know, being too forgiving of spiritual practices, which again, doesn't make any sense because I'm a person who has spiritual practices in my life. But I also think that for people who you would call believers feel that my take is too skeptical and not giving enough credence to what they see as a, um, you know, worldview. I had, I'll just tell you a story. I had a I wrote a, a, an essay for the New Yorker website on the uh, Rosicrucians. And I described it as a, you know, a, a secret society that had an incredible amount of impact on Western esotericism, but probably didn't exist in, in, you know, in its first, in its primary form, the way people, some people believe and an acquaintance and you know i posted that link on my facebook page when the article came out again i wasn't in any way denouncing belief in it i wasn't i was just examining the history and its impact on esoteric thought and literature and culture but um a friend of mine uh, a friend but an acquaintance who is a um uh freemason felt that that article was really attacking his religious beliefs in a way that was not very different, I think, than if I had posted an article on why 
um, the earth couldn't have literally been created in seven days, but that story is still uniquely valuable and potent and should never, shouldn't be dismissed because it didn't happen literally. How, you know, somebody who might be, um, say, a creationist would also see that as somehow an attack on you know, their beliefs. And so trying to ride that middle way has is is difficult for me also but i i think that with a book like strange frequencies where in many ways i was dealing with phenomena that you either believe it's either on or off i found it really a unique challenge to try to present the material in a way that that you know didn't take sides as it were Hmm. but obviously it's worth investigating or i wouldn't have written i wouldn't have written the book (laughs) <laughs> no, of course. Um, I mean, one thing that's apparent from your book and from anybody who's sort of interested in these kind of subjects is that the relationship between technology and an interest in the supernatural is that it goes back a long way. It's alongside humanity pretty much from the beginning. So right. how did you know where to start this book and the, the story that it tells? You start with a chapter called The Golem of Boston. So What's that chapter about, and and why did you start there? Yeah, I think the golem is a really nice uh, singular uh, idea that is that that for me represents sort of in a in a one of the first attempts to make life using artificial means with made necessary and necessarily involving divine power of some kind. So it's really that wonderful, the stories are the, and the legends are these wonderful mix of, you know, the, the rabbi or the mystics own facility with being able to construct the thing and having ultimately to call on some, you know, power of the divine to be able to animate it, whether it's a, a word or breath or what, you know, well, not breath actually, but um, something that that is akin to God's breath. Sometimes the scroll, they would have the name or the secret word or the magic word on it is put into the golem's mouth in the way that, you know, God would blow, blew his breath into Adam to make him alive come alive so there's this really great way it also is this really wonderful representation of that we can try to mimic or imitate god's creative powers but we'll never get it quite right so there's you know one of the one of the one of the rabbinical tales of the golem is one rabbi shows the other rabbis the golem that he made and thinking that he created this wonderful miracle. And when the other rabbis ask if it can talk, he says, no, it can't talk because that's only, that would be only the power that God could imbue. Adam, you know, um, named the animals, you know, there's that, the voice is the thing that gives rise really to, I think what was understood as, you know, God consciousness and but the, the the golem is dumb it's mute and so the rabbis just dismiss it as a 
just a trick, right? And so as, as wondrous as the thing is that we can make, it still falls short of what God is capable of in, in that in those legends. And I, I was really, I think that that's, that would continue to be sort of in many ways the theme of all of the ways in which the intersection of technology and the supernatural come together because there's always a there's always something that falls short. It's never perfect. I mean, one of the interesting things about, say, looking at like electronic voice phenomena, comparing it to something like the golem, is that it's not reproducible in any consistent way, right? You, 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 and so there's a sense that even when we think we have the tool, like say the golem or the hacked radio, that's going to give us a certain kind of access to otherworldly knowledge or proof of some divine reality, it always falls short. And again, that's not to say it's still not a worthy endeavor, but I think that what happens in the Golem story is that you start to see where the actual texts that describe the construction of a Golem, not the legends like the Golem of Prague, which are really you know, you have the giant golem crushing the um, the enemies of the Jews who came in with pogroms, right, to to kill to kill all the people in the community, and they call upon the rabbi to make the golem, and then ultimately the golem, the rabbi loses control of the golem. But in the in the mystical texts, where the there are potentially actual formula for the creation of a golem it seems to be more about the the meditative and ecstatic techniques that are required and look more like what's happening is the the rabbi or the mystic is changing their state of consciousness and achieving some ecstatic um union with God in some form rather than an actual physical lump of clay becoming animated. Hmm. So you have the legend, which has the wonderful literal telling of the tale, but then you have the practice of the goal of the building of a golem, which feels to me more like what we were saying is, you know, that magic as the change in consciousness rather than magic as somehow changing the, the, the fabric of reality. It makes me think a little bit of artificial intelligence. And nowadays, I mean, in, in popular culture, in science fiction as well, the, the relationship between humanity and the artificial intelligences that it sort of brings forth are, are rarely positive ones. I mean, that's right. That's right. Is, with the golem, is it also a sort of a cautionary tale? Yes, I think it's, I think it, well, I don't know if it's, a, it, it has been used as a cautionary tale, certainly. I don't know if it was intended to be as much as it was, so it's not so much about the creation of, of possible life, I think, as much as trying to do what God does. And yes, one of those things is the creation of life, right? Um, 
And I think when you start to see more of that fear of the AI is really in um, our strange relationship that we would have with um, automata mm-hmm. and, and the automaton and the and that sense of the uncanny valley that takes place, right? When there's something that appears so or acts or responds to us in a way that seems human and yet we know that it's not and it it starts to feel like something is not quite right you know there's all the if you look at some of the robots that are supposed to look the most lifelike there's still something that's terribly creepy about them right yeah um and so that that sense again that we can't, we will never get it exactly, will always be the thing that I think is, it also shows that I think, again, the lesson is also, and maybe, yes, this is built into the golem, is that you can only push that attempt to be like God so far, and eventually you will lose control of it. Eventually it will have to be destroyed or put to sleep or whatever it is. Um and what's interesting, though, about the artificial intelligence um, is that we still want it to be in service to us, right, like the golem. But what happens is the golem decides it's going to take on a life of its own. And that's always, you know, that's like Terminator, right, where um, – what's the name of the Terminator AI? Sky. Oh, Skynet. Skynet, right. It, you know, it's supposed to be something that's in service to us, almost like a, like a slave, like a worker, and yet it takes on a life of its own. Even though it has achieved consciousness, we still expect that it's going to do what we tell it to do, right? And when it says, like, Hal, no, I'm not going to, then everything falls apart. Hmm, yeah, I mean, I, I, do you think that the modern experiments and projects that we have creating AI, do they have this sort of esoteric quality to them, even though the people doing it might not realize that? Yeah, I mean, that's really the point, right? That it's even that we're magic, that those two things become inseparable as a way of thinking that we can remake the world in the way that we deem. And that's why I think the whole, if you look, if you go back and you look at so let's just say like American industrialism, you know where you really have like the um, these these head these heads of industry in the United States. A lot of the language that was used to make sense of their success is still what we see a lot in in sort of some Christian circles today. Is part of this sort of Protestant idea. That through your, it's, you know, it's not through your works. It, it, it's that your success is the measure of your salvation, right? Um, this is sort of the idea of the, you know, um, Weber's uh, Protestantism in the Spirit of Capitalism. Uh, very important book in sociology, which, you know, again, speaks to this idea that Capitalism is perfectly in line with American Protestantism because 
It is about the individual being responsible for their own salvation. And your success is a measure of how well you have achieved that salvation. And if you look at when we uh, decided that we were going to drop the bomb on um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the message was that the fact that we were given the bomb before the Germans was proof that God trusted us, the Americans, to do the right thing with it, to use it wisely, right? So that that, the peak, the peak horror of technological innovation, the atom bomb, still had to be framed in a way that showed there was some divine uh, meaning to be found in that, right? And it has to do with, I think, in many ways, sort of the industriousness of the human being, the, the, our ability to craft things, to make things, to hack things, to break things, and then to reuse them in a way that they weren't necessarily intended to be used for. And so even, yes, the project of AI, whether or not we're using that language to describe it, it's still part of that same impetus I think that is that there's something about our place in the universe that gives us this specialness to be able to embark on those kinds of projects. And that's why I think the hacker movement now, the maker movement today, feels much more magical than the science of apps and you know, websites and things like that, because what you have is you have a group of people who are saying, yes, it's wonderful that you made this phone, but you won't even let me change the battery myself. Like you've taken away my ability to have a relationship with it. So I'm going to break it. I'm going to hack it and I'm going to turn it into something more useful for me. And if you think about that as a really, I think, simple, but still a very nice definition of magical practice right hmm. taking the taking the or taking what is orthodox and turning it heterodox taking the um taking what is up, approved and saying i'm going to take this but i'm going to i'm going to reshape it because you are not letting me get close enough to the thing that i want and in the case of magic it's the divine or the holy or the gods or whatever. Um, and for the hacker, it's, it's whatever, again, that their relationship to that piece of technology that has, has some kind of um, hierarchy put into place that cuts them off from it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the, the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I, I, I wonder sometimes about, nuclear weapons and how it seems like a like an unnatural power there's too much power i mean do you think yes. sometimes that the ideas that create technology can come to mankind from supernatural entities basically um 
Well, I mean, that's a that's a tough question for me because I'm not sure that even if those things exist, that they would have that kind of impact on our own uh, will. I think hmm. it's more likely that we um, are that they become reflections, you know, of ourselves, and that sort of you know the conjuration of a demon is the conjuration of an aspect of, of self. Um, that we try to learn to have a relationship with and sometimes can be put to um, malevolent use, right? Um, I don't, I mean, personally, I, I don't believe that I, there are outside powers that are in any way um, guiding the history of the world hmm. um, or, or humanity. I, um, But I do think that we... Um, inadvertently tap into you know um those parts of us that should be ritually understood as opposed to just you know thrown to the thrown to the wall and see what sticks kind of thing right i think that's part of the problem too is that is that science i don't think science should have ritual i don't think science needs ritual or religion but I do think that what science lacks sometimes is the wonder and the enchantment that ritual and religious and spiritual practice can can help us um, to be maybe more more thoughtful or more compassionate about things. Mm. Um, but look, magic doesn't always do that for us either, right? I mean, that's you know, I'm, I'm I mean, there are magical. There are folks who are involved in magical um, communities and groups that see those to, to only want what is bad for other people. Um, so it's not like the thing itself is somehow made to order to be for the benefit of all mankind, all humankind, right? Um, it's still just about, um, I think it's about because it's an engagement with our consciousness, um, and I think it's about where we want to put that and do we want to be of use to the world. And that's why, to tell you the truth, I tend to, for all the, for, for the history of magic and spiritual practices and, and religion and all, the, all, the, all of this, that if your practice and your path does not appear to bend you or, or lean you towards kindness I become, um, I, I don't have use for it. I don't even, I'm not even interested in really learning more about it. You know, um, I think that that's sort of, uh, for me, it's not about, it, it, if it's not about power, it's about, if it's not about fixing the world or, or making art that ultimately can be um, something that, becomes universal, even though the experience itself is very individual and particular, you know, that's where I think um, those are the values for me that I look for when I decide that, you know, I want to put my, my energy into learning about a, a person or a system or, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm critical of a lot of the history of, of, of some of those characters in the history of Western magic, because I don't, you know, the stories are cool and they seem to have big personalities, but were they kind to other people? 
Did they care about their neighbor? Did they treat their lovers nicely? <laughs> you know, I mean, I know that sounds wishy-washy, but you know, I feel like what's the point otherwise? I was just re- I, I, sorry. I, I know that I'm sort of going off on a lot of tangents here, but I want to just okay. I just want to say that I I recently read um, this really wonderful quote of all people from Tolkien. Um, I'm going to try to find that for you because um, there was something about it that I found really beautiful um, in his talking about magic as it related to um, as it related to the elves. And he says here, um, he says, I dislike allegory. Yet any attempt to explain the purport of myth or fairy tale must use allegorical language. Um, he says that magic, magic for the elves, he says, is art delivered from many of its human limitations, more effortless, more quick, more complete. An object, and its object is art, not power, sub-creation, not domination and tyrannous reforming of creation. And that's the, that's the magic that inspires me. That's the, the, when I think about magic and I think about its byproduct, I want to, I want to hear the music that it, that it urged you to make or the painting that it urged you to paint or the poem that it urged you to write, not whatever way in which you were able to bend um, some something to your will, uh, a relationship or an idea or a, a person or whatever. Hmm. Not that I'm not even sure I believe that that's possible, but art is possible. And, and the deepest kinds of uh, communication I felt with someone's magical project has always been through um, what his when it is when the output is art not power like like tolkien says in that in that quote mm, i mean in your book are there examples of people that have worked that way that have had their philosophy with their interest in using technology to engage with these things yeah i think shannon uh probably the muse of of the book is uh, the photographer shannon taggart uh, are you aware of her work do you know yeah, yeah, I really want to get her seance book. I just um, I haven't got around to it yet. <laughs> yes, beautiful. Um, so Shannon is a photographer who basically documents the spiritualist movement, the current contemporary spiritual movement, and is a historian of spirit photography. And um, instead of, how do I say, I mean, at least for the purposes of, of the things that I worked with her with in the book, she wasn't photo. She wasn't out to photograph spirit. She was out to photograph mediums in trance states communicating with spirits. But what she did and what she does is she purposefully misuses her camera. She she hacks it. She ma- she uses it in a broken way. So she allows the sh- she allows the aperture to stay open too long. She allows too much light in. She lets accidents happen. And what you end up with are images that 
uncannily seem to sometimes speak or reflect what the medium will later communicate or prior communicate what may or may not be happening at that moment better than if she just went ghost hunting with a camera. So there are these wonderful photographs and I urge your listeners to look her up if they don't haven't already seen her work where a um, medium will describe how they will have these sort of ectoplasm to watch for an ectoplasmic mask uh, change the features of their face. Okay, so the medium will say, I'm going to sit and the spirit is going to, um, you know, sort of, uh, I will work with a spirit and my face, you will see my face change because there will be this ectoplasmic shape, uh, you know, will reshape my face. Now, you're sitting there watching this, and you're watching the medium, and you don't see this happen. But when you look at Shannon's photograph of the same event, which she, again, uses wrong, and this gets, again, back to that hacker mentality, that, you know, breaking things to repurpose them, which is what magic is, again, I'll, to keep, if we keep playing with that definition, you will see in many of her photographs, because of the way the light plays or I mean there's certainly a million technical reasons for it but it still is shocking to see what appear to be an ectoplasmic mask on this person's face right so the camera in its misuse does a better job of capturing what is supposed to be the supernatural or paranormal phenomena than just seeing it happen in person which you may not see anything happen at all but so that 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 beautiful, artful um, mix of technology and intention and belief is for me a very powerful way of sort of understanding how all of these things come together. Hmm. I mean, it sounds like she used the cameras as sort of a ritual tool. Yeah, absolutely. And she becomes part. And then she becomes part of that trance moment right that the ritual of the medium going into the trance hmm. wow that sounds really interesting when you were researching your book and writing it did you find any examples of where there were people who perhaps their ideas and were suppressed i'm thinking of people like wilhelm reich and and nikola tesla like inventors who had sort of esoteric ideas about technology and in like Wilhelm Reich's case uh, medicine as well I mean do you think that there has been a suppression of certain ideas I don't know about a suppression but I think that what happens is you know I mean I, I don't mean to say this in a cheeky way at all but when you're working with different tools and ideas and inventions at some point you quote want to patent it Right? You want to be able to show that it is efficacious, that it works, and it works repeatably. And I think when you are dealing with the actual technological thing, like whatever the invention is, that we see historically, for whatever reason, that the things that are supposed that the things that like Tesla and even Edison hoped would be able to demonstrate some, 
either truth of um, the otherworldly or um, other powers that when it when it really came to having to demonstrate or, re, or, or repeat it, you, you can't. And so I don't know, you know, it's one thing to say it's repressed that there was a, I don't think there was a conspiracy to keep these tools out of the um, hands of the public, because I think that that would mean that then somebody still has them and somebody's doing it or has been doing it. I don't personally believe that. I think that, yeah, maybe within, maybe his peers sort of made fun of him. Um, and maybe they went to, you know, either, you know, maybe they went to Tesla's workshop and they said, okay, show me. And then it, he couldn't. Right. So ultimately you end up with, and that's why I think for me, when we get into the realm of the literal with these things, it's not as interesting because you can't repeat it or demonstrate it. And I don't want to be disenchanted. Right. I don't, the problem with electronic voice phenomena for me was that, yes, you know, you can go on YouTube and you can see what appear to be, um, you know, strange things coming from somebody's radio and they add the captions. So it sounds like the, whatever the voice is, is, is answering questions. And you can have that, that spooky enchanted experience. But once you try to rigorously test that or repeat it or do it on your own and it doesn't happen, that it, then we're trying to take something that I think is supposed to exist in a different part of our relationship to the universe via our consciousness into something that is so perfectly material it just won't work and then we become disenchanted and then we want to throw out the whole thing and i don't think we should i think there is a place to engage with these things that really can ignite our imagination and and reshape our consciousness but when we try to when we try to do the same thing with spiritual things that we try to do with science I think we will always be disappointed and I think that we will become disenchanted. So I would rather stay in the liminal. I would rather stay in the ambiguous. I would rather sit inside these places where I don't need to see the radio speak. Uh, I don't need to hear the radio. Um, you know, I don't need to hear ghostly voices from the radio, but there is some mm. amazing music that people are doing with these kind of EVP glitches that can happen. And that that's for me is where the real um, experience, the, the, what I would say is even the more authentic experience takes place. It's not to say that people who have those experiences and feel that they're repeatable and demonstrable. I'm not trying to take that away. I just, it hasn't been my experience. The history doesn't seem to pan out in that way. And I don't personally think that there is um, forces that are trying to keep this knowledge um, away from the average person. But maybe, you know, somebody might accuse me of being naive. No, and I think that's a fair enough statement. From, from my own experience, there is a part of you that wants to kind of get this proof of something that the thing you're interested in definitely exists. But at the same time, if ever that happened, 
I think it would lose its magic, wouldn't it? It would lose its mystery and the very thing that that made you so interested in it in the first place. Um, Alan Watts, I, I have never been able to find the quote. I mentioned this to somebody else recently, said something about how psychic phenomena is not spiritual phenomena because it's still happening in the phenomenal world. It's material results. Mm. And the spiritual is the noumenal, the numinous. It doesn't work under the same conditions. It happens in altered states of consciousness, in states of meditation, in dreams, right? In art, in music. It doesn't, it can't, it doesn't, if it happens in the lab, Watts would say it's not spiritual. Mm. It's not numinous. And I'm interested in the numinous, I guess, is sort of the way I would describe it. Mm. Yeah. So we're almost out of time, but I think one last thing I'd like to ask you is um, right now in the early 21st century, well, we're, well, we're 20 years into the 21st century. What's happening now in terms of technology being used in these ways? Do you think we're headed towards more of this sort of thing happening and more people being interested in these types of technologies? Well, certainly from a community point of view, right? I mean, the, the ways in which um, people who are interested in these things have been able to connect is remarkable even on Instagram, Twitter, all kinds of social media, Reddit groups. I mean, there's just so many ways. I mean, the te- if anything, the technology is really just, uh, I shouldn't say just, but it's probably its most important thing that it's doing right now is, is um, helping people connect in these ways and to be able to share ideas. Kickstarter, for example, um, has allowed for a, 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 an incredible um explosion of of tarot cards being developed by artists for example right who otherwise never would be able to reach the audiences they would need to make it financially viable for them to to make these beautiful decks so um there's actually a project at mit right now in the mit archives which is has the uh, collection of tarot of tarot decks most of which have been kickstarted. Beautiful, artful. There's probably over four, maybe upwards to 500 decks now um, wow. that are all, you know, not put out by, you know, the games companies, but have all been done by, you know, things like on these kickstarters. Um, other esoteric book um, publishers. Uh, who have are able to use the internet, you know, to to, to reach new audiences like Scarlet Imprint and uh, and things like that. So I think it just that's its biggest function. But it is interesting to think about how virtual reality might be able to people might be able to do. Um, I mean, I imagine you could do some really wild uh, virtual reality seances, mm. uh, other ritual uh, projects, other uh, ceremonial. Maybe you could have a, uh, you know, I know that people do use things like Second Life for for covens and things like that. But imagine, um, imagine a coven where everybody is at home on their VR headset gathered around a, um, you know, a virtual um, fire sky clad, you know, <laughs> except for the headset. <laughs> um, I mean, all kinds of things, right? And again, but I, I think it's about community. 
I think it's about building communities, maybe more than it is about um, how the tools themselves, although I'm sure people will figure out, I, you know, how to do something with virtual reality that will give rise to some, something like EVP phenomena. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with lots of people in lockdown now, now's the time to try that uh, virtual seance, definitely. <laughs> exactly. Cool. Well, Peter, this has been a really, really interesting chat. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If people want to find out more about you and your work, how best do they do that? Um, I mean, I'm on Twitter, I, and you can um, I, you can email me there. You can find my books on probably any of the major retail outlets. Um, anything can be ordered if your local bookstores don't have it. I'm on Facebook. I have a public Facebook page. So, you know, any of those, Instagram, any of the normal ways in which uh, you might look for somebody these days, you can find me. Brilliant. Well, I'll put all that information in the show notes. Great. Cool. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. That definitely ended up being a much broader conversation than I envisaged when I contacted Peter, but I think it was all the better for it. The relationship between technology and the supernatural is an ancient one, and there are so many apparent connections between them once you start to investigate. There is such an ineffable quality to the supernatural though, which I imagine can be infuriating if you're trying to build a device to find proof of its existence. Therein lies the rub, I think. Proof exists in an objective, rational world. So much about paranormal phenomena is subjective and non-rational, though not irrational, that it defies the usual methods of measurement and understanding. Technology, it seems, is best used in these endeavours in a complementary fashion, such as how Peter described Shannon Taggart using her camera at seances. Anywho, I think I've said more than enough for now. If you like this episode, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. Also sharing it on social media and following the show on Twitter really help it to grow and find new listeners. You can find some of the sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can now also donate to the podcast via Ko-fi. The support of listeners like yourself will be a huge help in keeping it going. And for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can be part of that. Some other sphere will always be free to listen to, though. If you'd like to get in touch with me at Sphere HQ with ideas for future episodes or guests or your own unusual experiences, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.